Yeah, uh, brilliant. You know, I'll tell you, think of the craziest surgery surgery you could think of. So I, I can't think of a crazier one than, than stopping a person's heart to, to open a person's head, dig as deeply into a person's brain as you can with a tiny clip the size of a mosquito wing. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. My guest today is Tony Bartlemy. He's author of A Surgeon in the Village, An American Doctor Teaches Brain Surgery in Africa. It's an incredible true story of a surgeon, a brain surgeon, Dr. Delon Elagala, who travels to Tanzania. After 15 years of being inside the medical establishment, learning to be a brain surgeon in the United States. In this interview, we cover so much about, again, the difference one person can make. Tony is a very talented journalist. He's an investigative journalist, a narrative storyteller. He's been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize three times. I love this review on the Washington Post that A Surgeon in the Village is a harrowing and important book. I'll just share with you this one last fact, which we talk about in the interview. We'll get right into it. But you know that 5 billion people on this planet live without access to adequate surgical care. That means 17 million people die every year who wouldn't otherwise. When Delon went to Tanzania, there were about five brain surgeons in a country of 42 million people. Fortunately, through the work that he has done and is doing, that's changing in Tanzania and elsewhere. With that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Tony Bartlemy. Tony, welcome to the School for Good Living. Great to be here with you, Brilliant. Tony, will you tell me, please, what's life about? What's life about? I think life is about a journey to find the true you, which is easier said than done. It's like you set me up perfectly for the next question, which is, who are you? What do you do? <laughs> how do you commonly answer that question anyway, or how do you like to? So I am my profession. I don't think that's me, but my profession is uh, as a storyteller, a, a, a storyteller who writes, writes things. I, I am uh, a searcher, an investigator. I try to find subjects and issues that go beyond the obvious because we already know what's obvious. Yeah. Although my dad used to say nothing is obvious to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> He's right. Cause yeah. yeah. Once you dig deeper, the obvious, you know, there's always one more layer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that and recognizing your long career in journalism and this investigative reporting, this narrative storytelling, mm-hmm. one thing I'm, I'm really interested to know is how do you choose your subjects. I mean, I realize you have, you probably got an editor. <laughs> You've got people who are asking you to take assignments or inviting you to, but how do you like to choose? What are the stories that you like to investigate? So almost every good story begins with a conversation, just like we might be having today. So somebody inevitably comes up to me and says, Tony, you ought to look at this. You ought to uh, investigate this, or you, I can't believe I just heard about that. And then from there, 
you just go deeper. And and I try to find stories that actually that I'm interested in mm-hmm. personally. Uh, if you can find a story that 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 you can actually grow from as you investigate, then you've got that kind of congruency, I guess that that allows you to really it, it, it taps into that inner passion, that inner inner motivation, and then pretty soon you're growing with the things you're investigating and it's like a beautiful tree. Mm. So there's a story that you followed and I understand it might've been as long as five years um, that became the book, became your book, a surgeon in the village, an American doctor teaches brain surgery in Africa. But will you tell me how did this story come to you or how did the conversation that initiated this book begin? And what was this journey like? So it began with a conversation. Uh, an editor walked over to me in the newsroom where I work one day and he says, you know, I just had this, I just met this crazy brain surgeon. Uh, he lives here in Charleston and he, he, he's, he was, he told me all these crazy stories about opening up people's brains in the middle of somewhere in the middle of Africa with a tree saw. You ought to sit down with him and, and find out what he's doing. And so I did. Um, and I, I called him up and uh, set up uh, an appointment to meet him at a restaurant a few blocks from where I'm sitting right now, uh, right near the medical school. And I remember getting there on time and he arrived. Uh, he, he, he didn't arrive for 10, 15, 20 minutes. And I kept thinking, you know, man, brain surgeon. Uh, he's probably got a God complex. He's He's probably a real jerk. Um, and then he walks in and he's this six foot four guy. He's got a shaved head, which is perfect for teaching brain surgery. You can point to what you're going to do to somebody's head. He's in his scrubs and he sits down and I I was a little ticked. Um, and he sits down and he immediately apologizes. And he said, yeah, I was caught in a surgery. And with my little chip on my shoulder, I said, ah, piece of cake. Right. And he loved that. Um, because people tend to treat brain surgeons as these deities and it immediately, you could almost see his shoulders relax. Okay. I can have a conversation with this dude. And then we were off and he told me his story. Now I realize it might be unfair to ask you, well, what was the story, right? I mean, that's why you wrote a book. That was what you spent years, right? Well, his story was his, his story. It started off with failure. He was this aspiring brain surgeon. He's going through med school and he goes through his residency. And for a brain surgeon, it takes it takes 15, 16, 17 years to really become a, a really fully qualified brain surgeon. You have to go through med school and then residency. And the residency can be seven, eight years. And so he's going through this process, this incredible journey up Mount Everest. And by the end of that journey, he is exhausted and burnt out. He can, you know, he's, he's, uh, his relationships are in pieces. He's really developed some addictions, uh, addictions to really sort of, sort of sexual addictions where he, you just, you kind of use sex as a way of avoiding pain. And so he was a mess and he knew it because he's a really deep thinker. And, and, and so he decides, well, I've, I've reached the pinnacle of my career. I'm, I'm going to go take a six month vacation in the middle of Tanzania with my girlfriend. 
and I'm just going to relax. And so he goes to Tanzania and then he realizes that Tanzania and the rest of the developing world and really in the United States as, as much as anything, that there's this desperate shortage of skilled surgeons out there. And when he arrived, he said, he said, um, there were only five brain surgeons. And I remember saying, well, five brain surgeons, that seems like a lot. And he said, no, five brain surgeons for the entire country of Tanzania, which is, that's 42 million people with five brain surgeons. That's about the same number of brains. So that's the same number of people from Florida to Virginia with five brain surgeons. So people die because of the lack of skilled surgeons. And so then he, you know, he finished, we finished the lunch and he said, you know, Tony, Tanzania is awesome. You got to come see it. That's only teaching, you know, the experience is the greatest teacher. So come to Tanzania with me. And oh, by the way, I got married on an airstrip in front of 4,000 villagers. <laughs> well, there's a love story. I thought, oh, okay. Love story. I think I can, I think I can write about this. Wow. So you went to Tanzania multiple times, right? To write this. What was your experience like? So I went five, uh, five times for about five months overall. And I remember my first visit, I went and uh, I, I flew to Tanzania, uh, flew to a, a, a large city in Tanzania. And then I took this tiny little plane, this little Cessna plane that, that Delon Elagala, this was the, the name of the, the brain surgeon. He's from Sri Lanka. Delon Elagala took that same plane when he first went to Tanzania, which was great for, for a, a writer to do because then you, you're able to build a narrative around the same experiences. So I remember I took this tiny little plane flying over the bush, um, seeing these little circles down below. And, and I remember asking him, what, what are those circles down there? And he said, they're actually, uh, they're, they're thickets that villagers put around their huts to keep the wild animals out. And I, the, the landscape was awesome, as he said. And then we landed on this dirt airstrip with all the villagers waiting to see him. So it was just this, you know, amazing, amazing entrance. Yeah. You know, I've had the opportunity to visit Tanzania myself. I've never been to Hatem where this uh, hospital is located, but I love the people that I've met and the countryside is, is beautiful. I haven't spent five months there, but uh, what, what a privilege, what an experience and what an incredible story, right? I mean, you mentioned opening someone's head with a wood saw <laughs> to conduct brain surgery and people listening might not realize, you know, the impact of not having access to a brain surgeon, a surgeon of any kind, but a brain surgeon in the bush, but in your book, which I read some parts of kind of through my <laughs> fingers, just hearing these stories of hyena attacks or children with hydrocephalus or people who got hit with a stick, you know, who would have died for sure if it wasn't for, you know, what are these extraordinary things that we take for granted, at least the availability, I think, here in the developed world. But this insight that Delon had, and I love that you point out in the book that the Latin root of doctor Will you talk about that and about how that informed his view of making a difference, sharing his gifts and his knowledge with, with people in Tanzania and in Africa? Yeah. So the Latin root for, for doctor is, is teacher, teacher. And 
teaching in in medicine is 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 part of it. The medicine's DNA. There's an old saying that yeah, I'm sure you've heard: "See one, do one, teach one." That's 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 the sort of foundation of of modern medicine. And so Delon, you know, he arrives in Tanzania and and he realizes that this this vacation that he he had set up, he's confronted with with the the incredible suffering around him. You know, there, you know, there 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 are five billion people around the world without access to proper surgical care. You know, and 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 there there are seventeen million people, seventeen million people, seventeen million people die every year because of the absence of qualified surgeons. So, you know, if you think about serious medical problems around the world, we're not really paying attention to pay me the most important one, which is the shortage of doctors. And, you know, 17 million people dying is more than malaria, diabetes, and emphysema combined. Yeah. Um, so, he, you know, he goes to Tanzania, so he arrives on his vacation, and he's confronted with a suffering, and, and he realizes that he has the skills to, to help a lot of people. But when he leaves, what 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 will he leave behind? And so he decides to uh, to try a different approach. Teaching, teaching, yeah. You know, one of the one of the things that really cemented for me um, the decision to read your book and and Delon's story was an Amazon review that talked about uh, a lady wrote something about her husband who's not a reader. For whatever reason, he read the book and he couldn't put it down. <laughs> and that was my experience reading this book. It was clear to me that you have a great skill, not only to help the reader place themselves in this, in this world, you know, that's very far from home for those of us who live in the United States, but, but to have this experience being right alongside this incredible suffering, as you mentioned, that's, that's there, that's present all over the world, but in a, in a form that we don't see every day here. And then to take us along on this journey, like you said, there was this aspect perhaps of failure, right? Where then there was this effort, maybe the hero's journey mm, where Dylan left. And then he decided, and this was something that you point to, right? You talk about the biggest global health problem you've never heard of this thing about the lack of access to surgical care which I had similarly never heard of, but then what was the solution, right? Because this medical mission model that has been happening, I think in your book, you point out that in one trip to Mexico, one church got painted six times in a summer. <laughs> it's like, that's probably really not helping anyone. And it's, it's well-meaning people want to make a difference, but we maybe don't know how, or we don't have the faith that we can, but Delon, I think approached this in a different way. Will you talk about how he approached this teaching model and using what he knew and what he could do to make a difference and how that this maybe I'm stacking a bunch of questions here, but then how we might be able to follow some of the example that he set in that regard to make, make a difference in the world. Yeah. So, so a lot of people go on these medical missions with the best of intentions. They, they go there. I think there are 6,000 medical missions a year. Um, to places like this Heidem Lutheran, Heidem Lutheran Hospital. And when people go, they, these doctors and nurses and dentists, they go, they try to treat as many people as they can. And then they're, 
and they, they really, people work so hard. The compassion is amazing. Um, but then they leave. And so then you're left with that ongoing surgical skilled medical, uh, gap. And so Delon's sitting there watching all this and he's thinking, you know, is there a better way? So he decides he, he identifies a, a, a medical officer. And, and this is in East Africa, you have, you have kind of a slightly different type of medicine, um, medical hierarchy. And so there was a, a, a clinician named Emmanuel Mayega, and he had had a bit of medical training in the past. He probably equivalent to a, maybe a physician assistant param, between a paramedic and a phys, physician assistant in the United States. So Delon sees something in Mayega that Mayega can't see in himself. And that's really the key. That's what teachers and coaches do. They, they see, they see something in others that, that, that those people can't see in themselves. And then they open a door. They, they create a door for that person, that opportunity to walk through. And, and Delon saw this, this very interesting guy, Emmanuel Maega, who had the walk and the poise and the little bit of an arrogance of a surgeon. And he tries to, he, he, he kind of coaches Maega into thinking that maybe he could actually do some brain surgery, even though he's not even a doctor, a medical doctor. And so Delon spends six months bringing my egg along, um, using that see one, do one, teach one philosophy. And, you know, lo and behold, he's, he's able to teach my how to do some pretty complicated brain surgeries. And then he does something different. And this is the key. He teaches Maega how to teach others. He teaches all the skills and all the coaching uh, techniques that he used on on uh, um, on Maega on a second um, newly minted Tanzanian uh, doctor, and then teaches him how to teach, and then he teaches a third. And so suddenly, in a country with that only had four or five brain surgeons, you've almost doubled it just through that teach a man to fish philosophy. Amazing. Well, you mentioned the love story here as well. Where does that factor in? So the love story was a, it was just an awesome story, but B it was symbolic. So Delon's here, you know, he's sitting there with his girlfriend, six months, you know, teaching brain surgery. Um, but you know, his relationship with his girlfriend there, he knows it's over. And, and he, again, he's wondering, you know, I'm, I'm a failure as a, when it comes to relationships, um, but then he meets a pediatrician uh, from from uh, the Netherlands, and he's immediately love struck. And she's not, but over time he, he they they get together. Let's say, and it the the beauty of that relationship is that she was she just typified. She she was this classic. I'm going to save the world medical person full of compassion and love and just desperately wanted to help people. And in the process, she was burning herself out. She really literally almost killed herself just because she was trying to save so many people, so many kids. And so their, their marriage or their wedding eventually was this symbolic coming together of that teaching, teaching focused approach and the compassion 
the compassion that Delon, the brain surgeon, was missing, the kind of a higher altitude way to help people that Karin was missing, the, um, the, the pediatrician. And then, so they, they got married on an airstrip in front of four or 5,000 villagers. Emmanuel Maega was his best man. Uh, it was a, a, an amazing, amazing event. Yeah, such a fantastic story. I'm curious to know, have you optioned the book? Like, have you sold the rights to the movie? <laughs> I know that happens with, with these stories. No, not yet. Know anybody. Um, it's, it, it, it's one of those sort of, um, you know, kind of very cinematic uh, stories uh, yeah. that would, would be a good one. <laughs> I actually do know a guy, and I'd never thought of that. But as I've been doing these interviews for the last three years, I've learned you know, that happens with books that I wouldn't have thought. But uh, at any rate, if you want, I'd, I'd love to make an email introduction and see if it, if it goes anywhere. But uh, you, thanks. You know, I think good, you know, good stories are, are really often about, you know, private people love to, to, to learn about um, people's private um, experiences amid these grand, important settings. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard it said that the, the intimate is the most universal. So there is this, you know, grand saga we're all a part of, and yet we're all having our own experiences. So nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, how did writing this book, I'm assuming it did, right? So there's an assumption baked into this question, but <laughs> how did writing this book change your life? I learned one lesson after another uh, about about life. And and that's the beauty of, of just, a, I'm really grateful that I'm able to, you know, learn with the people I investigate. And so for, you know, Delon and Karin, I got to know them really well and I got to know how they struggled and how they succeeded. And, and really in the end, I was left with this an amazing lesson that failure is a gift, you know, as long as you learn from it, because failure gives you the energy, the, the energy to do something. It's a signal. It's a flashing light to, to make a change. And, you know, if, if you learn from it, that's how human beings move forward. So that, that important lesson to me was something I sort of knew, but didn't really experience. Um, and I couldn't really articulate it until I, I did that book. And then I, I just, oh, the, the richness of the people you meet are uh, just, it's just, I feel a much wealthier spiritually um, after meeting all these people. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, in the book where you talk about failure and how this is one of the things that separates the best surgeons from those that don't persist as surgeons, that actually really touched me as well. And you mentioned that book, Forgive and Remember. Yeah. Right. About this. And, and to me, there was also a really significant lesson in there about responsibility, right? Where those who didn't make it as a surgeon would blame other people or circumstances or bad luck or whatever. But that, that, uh, that was really powerful. Yeah. That was an interesting, they did interesting study where they looked at successful surgeons and then ones that, that failed out of their surgical programs. And they found, yeah, the, the successful surgeons were the ones who, you know, owned what happened, wouldn't stop talking about it, were the, were the, 
they, they, it was as if they were re-experiencing their failures over and over. And the ones who failed blamed others. So yeah, so owning, owning that failure and, but, you know, also recognizing that it's not the end of the world, that it is, is really a sign of, uh, that you're moving forward. Oh yeah. That's, that's, that's what it's about. Yeah. And then demonstrating that in a very human way in the book as well. And to come full circle with that procedure, which I'd never heard of, uh, about a standstill. Will you talk about where, like what that is? And also maybe Delon is the case in point of the successful surgeon who does forget or, or rather forgive and remember. Yeah. Uh, brilliant. You know, I'll tell you, think of the craziest surgery, surgery you could think of. So I can't think of a crazier one than, than stopping a person's heart to, to open a person's head, dig as deeply into a person's brain as you can with a tiny clip, the size of a mosquito wing, and then digging through all this, all these blood vessels while this person's heart has been stopped with their body temperature going down, getting colder and colder. In fact, you got to cool the room to, to make sure the person doesn't completely go uh, die. So this person is on the edge of death. Their, their brain waves are flat. Their heart isn't beating. And a surgeon is digging deep into the person's brain to put a clip on a tiny little blood vessel, any mistake he or she makes, and the person will die. And after about 30, 40 minutes, you can keep a person sort of on that edge for about 30, 40 minutes, uh, any longer, and then the person won't wake up. And so that was, that's what you call a, uh, a, a, a standstill operation with a, to, to fix an aneurysm in the brain. This, by the way, was one of those <laughs> moments for me. Yeah, I got in it. I, I was fortunate to, to witness one of those those operations and boy you know you, you wouldn't think that it was as crazy as it as it is because these guys are so cool and calm and collected but mm. yeah it's crazy I mean, well in the part two that you talk about in the book for for many years and i don't remember the hospital maybe you maybe you recall it i'm thinking of bellevue but where above the surgical area the words were prepare to meet your maker Prepared it. Yeah. Talk about a, a really bad attitude, you know, <laughs> but it, <laughs> above. Yeah. So you're sitting there on your bed about to get cut open. Yeah. Prepare to meet your maker was a, a sign above you. And ugh. things have changed. Yeah. Thank goodness. Well, before we before we transition our conversation, I want to ask what. What do you hope, like, first of all, was there a specific audience that you wrote this book for, you know, and if so, who was it and what did you want them to take away from it? So my audience really was anybody, uh, you know, but especially, uh, students and people who are interested in helping others. That was my, my main goal. Cause this, I think helps you think a little more deeply about helping others yeah. And I hope in a way that, that helps more people in, in, in more, in better ways. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's working, but do you, 
Are you seeing that that's happening now that the book has been out a few years? I've had, yeah, so the, I've had some really nice anecdotal moments where, you know, I, I remember meeting a medical or a, a student who was struggling and really didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. And he was, he basically quit school and he read the book and he decided to go pre-med and become a doctor. Mm. So, so that was nice. And then, then I met a, 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 a guy who, uh, who ran a program for medical missions for students. Um, and he did it in Latin America and he read the book and he said, Oh, I need to, I need to change my entire business model. Wow. And so he began doing kind of both, you know, missions for students and then also setting up a teaching focused program, uh, for, for dentistry in, uh, the Dominican Republic. So things like that, really, that was, yeah, yeah, nice. That made it all worthwhile. Yeah, that's great. And you probably know this better than I, having written many more words than me and sent them out much more broadly into the world, but we never know, right? The impact that our words will have. No, we never know. But, you know, if, if you, if you do a positive intention, no matter what it is, it can't hurt. Yeah. Well, and you relating that story of that, that student who had dropped out made me think about something you include in the book where Delon from an early age, like four years old, had seen his uncle as a doctor and Delon growing up in Sri Lanka had told his parents, I'm going to be a doctor. Right. Will you, I was so impressed by the impact that that had on the whole Elegala family and the certainty that a four-year-old had. But what I wonder is, you know, and then he did, he followed that life path, as you said, 15 years through medical school, becoming a brain surgeon, one of the, on the path to be the best in the world. But not all of us have that kind of clarity from such an early age. What's your view of how we can find it more easily than, you know, we might otherwise, if we don't already look inside and know for sure, you know, what our path is? Yeah, that's a great question. Because, you know, so Delon is this guy with, you know, who has this very, very clear intention at a very young age, you know, he's living in the, in the mountainous area of Sri Lanka and goes up to his parents one day, um, and says, you know, I'm going to be a doctor like my uncle. And from then on, and his parents thought, Hmm, yeah. And so they began to shape their lives around that intention. Our son could be a doctor. And eventually they decided to actually leave Sri Lanka, leave their home and move to the United States. And they moved from Sri Lanka to the South Dakota, you know, talk about a change in scenery. So they, and they really sort of created this, this, this very nurturing environment for that original intention. And so I, and really that's, I think the lesson is, is the power of a, of a clear intention, but then but that we all have that in us. Right. So it's, I think a matter of just recognizing that and then, then everything, you know, things can kind of come together once that clarity is reached. Yeah. So amazing. Just think yeah. that out of the mouth of babes kind of thing that this four year old and the parents, you know, like you said, they start to shape their whole lives around it and, and support him and his intention. And I was just reminded of the power of our speaking, the power of speaking can have and the power that intention can have. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I gave a, a talk uh, a, a year, a couple of years ago 
uh, in Detroit, the Detroit area in front of a bunch of um, medical residents. And there's about 150 people in the room. And I asked them, how many of you, just raise your hands, how many of you knew you were going to be a doctor when you were a kid? I'd say 80% raised their hands. Wow. That's power a, of intention. Yeah, that is powerful. Well, what related to this book have we not covered? So the, the well, the challenge for me, the challenges of writing this book were really hard. So I, it's from a writing standpoint, writing about a, a country that you've really never been to, about a field you know nothing about um, or very little about, and then writing it with authority required a lot of work and, and, and a lot of fun because, so, you know, so Maega ended up learning how to do brain surgery and he operated on a bunch of patients and I didn't know, you know, if, if he was telling me the truth and as a writer, I mean, that's the first thing you got to find out is, is whether people are, are telling the truth. And, and so I, I, I went out in search of Maega's patients and that may have been the f- Mo- the most fun I had on, on the entire project was was looking for Maiga's patients because it, it, this area was incredibly remote. Nobody has addresses. A lot of these patients came from areas that were, you know, an hour or two away, and and so I, it was like finding a, a you know a needle in a haystack. And and so we ended up going out with a, a um, you know a couple of translators and just riding down these dirt roads to the end of the earth it felt like and then <laughs> you just i remember one time we we uh, we um we were looking for a, a guy who, who'd been hit in the head with a stick and and it was one of my egg's first patients and and I, I went to i found his his wife and and she says no he's he's over there um over the hill uh, with his second wife and and so we go over to his second wife and down these long roads and paths and over through rivers. And, and then they said, uh, no, he's, he's over there, um, down some road. And so again, we'll go another hour we're hiking and driving through another place. And then we bump into a bunch of people who were completely drunk. They were just, just sitting around drinking homemade, whatever. And they kind of basically said, no, he was over that way, that way. Finally, so we spend the whole day looking for the guy. Finally, we bump into a guy on, we, we see a guy on the road and we ask, hey, do you know where, where this guy is? And he said, oh yeah, yeah. He's running from you. <laughs> Who did he think you were? He thought we were the cops. <laughs> wow. And so that, that was a, a, you know, it's a treasure hunt. And we ended up finding uh, most people, not him, but we found we figured, you know, if he can run from us for an entire day, that brain surgery worked. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that's so great. Well, thank you for, for sharing of your experience. I, I came across in my research, this idea that you like your, your subjects to involve some sort of quest. And it certainly sounds like this gave you that. Yeah, no, it, you know, people are infinitely interested in how other others manage their decisions. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, stories are how, how we learn and, and what better story is, is one about a 
quest to learn or a quest to grow, a quest to overcome. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, with your permission, I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. Oh, cool. Okay. So question. So again, this is a series of questions on a variety of topics. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. My aim for the most part is to ask the question and stand aside. I might pull on a response here and there, but that's the basic design. Okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a long hike up a mountain. Okay. Question number two, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Damn, that's a hard one. Oh. Dude, that's a great question. Um, I should acknowledge it's the famous technologist and investor Peter Thiel's question, but I do love the question. Oh, you're going to have me thinking for about the next three days on that one. <laughs> um, okay. We can, we can come back to Yeah. Let me, let me set that one aside because that's a good one. Um, Okay, maybe one of these others will jog something list too. So we'll keep going and I'll come back to it at the end. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? I am the truth and so are you. That one I want to know a little more about. I think it has a lot to do with this idea of a quest. You know, we're all, I think, on a quest to be the people who we are. And we're given all this programming at the beginning of our lives. And our parents put a little bit into us and others put into us. And social media takes a lot out of us. And um, and so we're on this journey. And, and I, uh, the closer to who we get, uh, time and again, I've just seen people who are more the, the closer to who they are the the more realized they are the 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 calmer they are the the more you know the people who are comfortable in their own skin those types i love that thank you okay question number 4 what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often the brothers karamazov dostoevsky's fantastic fantastic book that basically I think explains everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What are you reading right now? I'm reading this wonderful book uh, called why fish don't exist by Lulu Miller. And it's this, um, I'm only about a third into it, but it's this part memoir, part, um, part, uh, meditation on, 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 um, this theme of order and chaos. And she's a wonderful science writer and love it. Sounds cool. All right. Thank you for that. Question number five. So we've talked about the travel, some of the travel you've done already in this interview. But what's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? I always pack really light. So, you know, I went to Tanzania with a, with a single backpack and just the, the less you have, the less you have to worry about less... I lose stuff. So less I have to lose. And, and if you do lose something, you really know it. <laughs> so, one bag. 
what have you lost when you were traveling that caused you some consternation? God, everything. Uh, you know, I think I've, I, I guess I've never lost a laptop. Never left it in the seat back pocket? No, but I've lost phones. I've lost wallets. I've lost, yeah, you know, passports, you know. Wow. Okay. Question number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Well, one, you know, this is a minor thing, but it's something I did recently where I just went completely offline um, and get disconnected from the internet. And I think that's inc increasingly important going on a digital diet. And also, um, also another thing that I just did recently, I don't know if you ever heard of Wim Hof. I have. Yeah. The Iceman. So, yeah. The Iceman. Yeah. So I, 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 I've, uh, I've always tried to do uh, some meditation. And in fact, Milan kind of got me into to meditation and I had a little trouble with it. And, and so I started, I uh, came across this guy, Wim Hof, this crazy guy from the Netherlands. And his big thing is, is taking deep breaths and really hyperventilating and then taking um, cold showers or ice baths. And, but I've really found that, that his breathing technique is, is really a, a wonderful form of active meditation that kind of leads to a deeper kind of meditation in general. That's awesome. All right. Question number seven. I phrased this question. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Although one of my guests suggested I phrase it. What's one thing you wish every United States citizen knew? <laughs> but either way you prefer the phrasing how do you yeah. have that question you know the first thing that comes to mind is that i wish every u.s citizen could go to china go to hong kong go to uh and, and realize and see how we're we're not moving forward that well I, I think that op that opens i think that would open a lot of people's eyes i, I i'm i'm a richer person for for visiting china and realizing that we're we're just yeah we're not we're not up to snuff for in a lot of ways these days what's one example of that for you you know i <sighs> So the American culture is so focused on consumption and so, so focused on building our own little private gardens that we forget that, that we're part of this larger community sometimes, not always. And because of that, we're kind of alone and we're not working together like we should. And we've seen that politically. We're seeing that in lots of other ways. Um, so, yeah. Thank you for that. Question number eight. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Honesty is, I think, the key. And that's really being honest with yourself. And, um, you know, as soon as you start fantasizing or thinking about the future, um, then you're, you're creating these false narratives. So I think living in the moment, that's, that's what I try to do. I fail all the time, but it's, if you live in the moment with your relationship, the future will take care of itself. Yeah. 
Plus, I think that's why we call it a practice, <laughs> right? Yeah, nice. Question number nine. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Oh, don't invest in the stock market, or at least don't try, because I, I suck at it. I lost a lot of money. No, I didn't. I lost a little bit of money because writers don't make any money. But yeah, I don't know. Leave that to the experts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I'll come back to the other just to see if there happens to be anything this time. But what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Damn, that's a good one. So I'm trying to think, you know, what do people agree? What do people disagree with me about? And that's where I'm stuck. Okay. Let me go in what might seem a bit of a random direction, but really fascinated by the Ted talk you gave on Plankton. And you, you learned a lot. You shared a lot in that brief talk about Plankton, but was there something you learned in that, that either many people didn't know, or for whatever reason, didn't agree with you on or don't agree with you on? Yeah. So the, yeah, my, my investigation into Plankton was again, another really rich journey because you know, I didn't know anything about plankton, but, uh, you know, plankton, they, these little specifically phytoplankton are, are produce half of the oxygen on earth, or as I said in my talk, every other breath and the, you know, the climate change is, is creating this giant chemistry experiment in our oceans where our plankton, our most important oxygen producers live. And we don't really know what's going on. Um, and so again, that was one of those stories that that's, that's hidden in plain sight. What's more important than the air we breathe? Um, so yeah, that was a, that was a, you know, beautiful story because I, I actually, and to try to try to really tell it well, I, you, you can't just sort of hit people over the head and say, Oh, plankton, you're going to die because you're, you know, your oxygen is going down the tube. So I really had to create this, this story of, about beauty in a mystery because because people are not going to read 5,000 words about plankton but they will read books about beauty they will read a books about mysteries and and so really that was really the, the important thing to me was really to, to you know get that the, the wonder of a beaut the wonder of these little critters and the wonder and the the, the, the mystery of it all get and, and sh you shape the story around those themes. Oh. All right. Thank you for that. Okay. The last question here in the enlightening lightning round is kind of a gimme. It's if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Well, you, you, one easy way is just go to my website, tonybartleme.com. And that's a tongue twister. So um, just Google me. And, and then I'm just happy to talk to anybody about what's on their minds. Awesome. Okay. Well, just a few last questions for you about creativity and writing. But before we go to that part of the interview, mm -hmm. uh, I just want to share with you that as an expression of gratitude to you for making time to talk with me and everyone listening, I've done two things. One is I've made a micro loan to a woman entrepreneur in Cambodia named Simone. She earns four US dollars a day and she'll use this money to buy cassava seedlings, soil and fertilizer for her farm. And in the process, improve the quality of life for herself, her family, and her community. So thank you for giving me a reason to do that. Well, that that's wonderful. 
Yeah. And the other thing is I, I went to Madaktari Africa's website and I made a hundred dollar donation to the, to them for the work they're doing. Oh, nice. On nice. your path. So thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Pretty cool. Okay. So the last part of the interview here, uh, writing and creativity. Man, I'm going to start with kind of a, well, let me start with this. When did you first know yourself to be a writer? Oh, you know, it took a long time, you know, talk about failure. You know, I, I went to, I went to journalism school, um, and mainly cause my math made my head hurt. So, you know, even into my senior year as a, in journalism school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I remember took one of those career tests. I think they still do them where you, you, um, you answer questions. It, basically researchers interview thousands of people who say they are happy in their careers and then they match their personality traits with yours. And so I took this test and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm actually answered the questions in such a way that I hope the results would skew away from journalism. Got the, got the results back. Lo and behold, off the charts says I should be a reporter. I'd be happiest being a reporter. So made me wonder if all those happy journalists had lied to their researchers, but so here I, you know, I ended up, um, I ended up in my first job at, at a journalism school. It was of course with an engineering company, right? Um, again, didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was bored within six months and I, I took my, I was making good money, but I was just, I was dying inside. And so I took the first job I could, uh, in, in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, massive, I was making $12,000 a year. It was a poor poverty line wages. Um, but you know, that's when I realized when I started actually doing it, that I had, I had found the career that I was probably born to do, but it, it, it didn't happen. It was not a clear, clear and linear path. Did it ever become clear? And if so, how, how, and when, what made it clear? So er, early on, I remember I was sitting at my desk. This is, you know, I was, I was 22, 23 years old, about 22. And, and I was sitting at my desk and I, and I, the editor comes over to me and he, he hands me a press release. And it's, it's about a, uh, about a, uh, uh, it was a Christmas tree in a mall that was an um, angel tree, they call it. And he said, Tony, go ahead and do a, do a story about this angel tree. And I, I looked at it and I thought, oh, God, I, this is not what I was born to do. So I, I was a little ticked off. So I said, you know, I'm going to go go to that mall and look at that stupid angel tree. And so I go out there and I looked at the angel tree. It was a few days before Christmas. It was empty. Nobody, nobody had given any donations. I thought, well, that's okay. So I went back. I spent a little time writing it. They put it on the front page um, and just kind of the way I wrote it. And and then the next day, the, the tree was completely full. Wow. And that was my first. That was my first first sort of experience of yeah, a. You do a little extra, go a little deeper, and b. Yeah, man, what I'm doing might actually help people. That's really cool. When you say you went deeper with that story, how did you go deeper? Because it seems on the surface pretty straightforward. You get this assignment, you go look at the tree, it's empty. You write a piece that says, hey, the tree is empty. <laughs> but how did you 
How'd you go deeper with that? What did that mean to you? Well, first of all, was actually going to look at the tree. And then, you know, instead of just writing what was on the press release, that that would have been the go-to thing for most people. And and so digging that just a, a little extra deeper and finding that, oh, it's not not doing so well. And then I, I, I actually, I've, I've been tried to find the story. I haven't been able to find that story I did, but it, it was, I, I remember trying to put it within the season. And I, what I, I remember trying to write it better than I normally would. And I, at that point I wasn't the best writer, so probably it wasn't a very deep story, but I, uh, it, it seemed to resonate. And going a little extra deeper, you know, that's always the most important thing that I can do as a reporter is go beyond the obvious. Yeah. Well, in that, what's that famous saying about a drop of ink can make a million think? Ooh, yeah. Nice. And how cool your words had the impact of making a difference for others, even from this early, early time in your career. That's pretty cool. Tell me what you've learned about how do I say this without sounding totally mystical, right? But about the energy behind words, right? Because in any communication, there's the content, but there's also the intent or the, the energy, so to speak. What have you learned about, if anything, what have you learned about that? How do you see that? Yeah, that's a great question because really the, 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 uh, the quality of your writing is really dependent on that, that energy. You know, it's that, that little extra, that little extra work you put in to make, make the word closer to what it, you know, ought to be. And, you know, it, it, writing is hard. It takes time to, to figure out a good metaphor. That's not a cliche. It, it takes time to get that extra detail. Um, it takes time to, to, to craft a sentences that maybe create a bit of a rhythm and, and pacing that, that lead kind of lead the the reader down the, the page and then to, to a end point that kind of punctuates the whole thing. And um, so, yeah, behind every bit of writing, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of work. Yeah. I remember when I was first exposed to that, when I was um, getting more serious about writing in my own life and I called the only person I knew personally who was, he was a New York times bestselling author. And I asked him, you know, he's about 35 years older than me, but he was willing to share a bit of his journey and so forth. And he talked about how he said, you know, now that I'm in my, he said, now that I'm approaching my seventies, I just don't have the stamina to write like I used to. And I thought, who needs stamina? It's writing. <laughs> how do you need stamina? But he said that that's a, you know, that's a real thing and you got to use it while you've got it and nurture it, protect it. So that's really interesting. I, I hadn't really thought of that, but you, yeah, it is physically demanding. I mean, at the end of a day, a long writing day, you know, my wife gives, gives me grief because she, you know, if, if I'm going through a really long writing process, I look like I've just been beaten up. My face is just a mess. And inevitably there are a bunch of Amazon packages coming because I'm distracting myself by buying stupid <laughs> stuff. And so, yes, physically it's, it's, it's a lot of writers will, will, will write in the morning and then quit uh, uh, writers that I've, I've known and just to maintain balance. Yeah. That was one thing when I read a book by a guy named Mason Curry called daily rituals, how artists work. 
Ramon, do you happen to know this book? Mm-mm. And no. he and he he read biographies and he read profiles and and different accounts of different artists and authors and even a couple scientists. Benjamin Franklin was in there and Darwin was in there. But it was just this really neat book that gave a little vignette, you know, like probably 200 of these different people. And it what was remarkable to me was how little as a percentage of a day many of these people worked, but how prolific they ended up being because I think they were in their zone of genius. They were doing what they loved. They did it over a period of decades. They gave their full intensity while they were in it. But I'm curious with you, what does your writing routine look like and how do you differ? Because you're a journalist, but you're also writing books and there's, I'm sure, a different cadence to that. Do you have a sort of routine that you follow generally? Does it change when you're in a book project? What what does that look like? How do you manage your time as a writer? So book projects are exponentially more challenging because I don't, once you reach a certain word count, I think it's, you know, if I had to guess, be around eight or 9,000 words, just the complexity of uh, of the organization, the amount of information that you've got to, you know, put in your internal brain's hard drive becomes just this extra lift. So uh, a book project for the, so the surgeon in the village was, was a, really hard project because I was also doing uh, my job as a reporter. So again, you're sort of balancing everything. Um, my, my routine really depends. What I try to do is when I'm really, really writing, I try to seclude myself and really just and give it my all. And, and I might work 12, 13 hours a day and do that until and just, I'm not functional and, and, and just not writing. And then I stop and rest. So it's a little manic. Um, and I, I know other writers who kind of experience that too. It's, um, you, but you got you got to capture that lightning, right? When, yeah. when when it's in in getting that lightning, often might take six hours of sitting on your butt trying to figure something out, and then boom, what happens? Something, and you're done in an hour. Yeah, that reminds me. I didn't watch the series Mad Men. I don't know if you happened to to watch it when it was out. Yeah, but I remember the one scene when what's the guy's name Draper. Right. And, and his boss comes in when he's lying on the couch and his boss says, you know, I just can't get over the fact that virtually every time I come in here, it looks like you're doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> but I think sometimes that's when maybe our best work is organizing itself. So, yeah. yeah, I remember I remember in college, I took a philosophy course. We had to read Heidegger, who's like ridiculously complicated. And I remember I, I took a bunch of naps as I read it. It was a day full of naps as I read it because it was so demanding and for like this glimmer of a second i actually understood a tiny bit of it and it's all gone now but oh i'm gonna try this question there's a disclaimer i don't love this question but i'm gonna try it maybe you'll have the fantastic answer what's the worst advice what's the worst advice you hear given to beginning writers worst advice is it I hear a lot of people get down on it and and say you'll never make any money you'll never be able to support yourself never never be able to do it and I would say maybe it's that discouragement it's a tough it's a tough road but if if it's something you're passionate about if if that's your thing um, yeah, that's bad advice. 
Yeah. And what's that? That's saying doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What, um, what have you learned about? This is like a big question just from the beginning too, but what have you learned about storytelling? Yeah. Story, storytelling are these little gifts that we give each other. The little gifts of, of other people's experiences that allow us to, you know, learn. And so, you know, I think it's really important for us to give good, good ones. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And I was, I was intrigued as I looked at your craft. I tried to, as I was reading and just trying to comprehend what you were communicating also going, how did he do it? How did Tony do this? When obviously you were there, as you said, you were on the ground in Tanzania for five months, you met these people, you went far and wide to talk with people and so forth. But there were, so two particular questions I was really curious about. One was dialogue. Cause I know like dialogue is probably for artists, what drawing fingers is <laughs> It's really <laughs> challenging, right? To, to create dialogue. And what have you learned about crafting dialogue that's human, especially when you're not necessarily working from a transcript? Cause my sense was you weren't in the room for some of those conversations, but how did you approach that? So that's my first question. Yeah, that's a great question and an important one because, you know, some, you know, I was, I was there for, for uh, a lot of the experiences, but I, I wasn't there for a lot. So I have to reconstruct and, and that's where writers can get into, can get into this gray area of making, making stuff up and, and, or not capturing it pr properly. And so that's where the work comes in. That's where the reporting is where you, you know, I remember, you know, Delon, I wasn't with Delon when he was running down the airstrip and, and bought this tree saw that he, you know, that he used later. And, um, and so I, I remember I actually walked down the airstrip with him and, and he, and I, and I asked him what color was the, the dust and, you know, what, you know, what kind of pants you were wearing. And, and so we, just experiencing those with the, the subject can help make it, um, more accurate. And that's the most important thing you can do. Um, and then dialogue, I, 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 you know, dialogue is gold when you're a writer because you really, it really livens up a story. Uh, and I would always try to, you know, I, I would say, what do you remember saying? And then I would try to corroborate that with somebody else to make sure that he didn't make it up. And he, I don't think he did, but he, you just want it to be as accurate as you can. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's where the work comes in. And that's, that's the difference between, sort of average reporting and, and building a narrative. You, yeah. You build a full palette and it, more colors, the more accurate it is. Yeah. And you really, and you touched on the second question before I even asked it, which was also then about detail, you know, for these events that you weren't there when remember there was one passage where you talked about the tone in his voice, you yeah. know, this kind of thing. And, and I just wondered like, how do you know? Right. Because I remember I, I collected a, I collected stories about my father five years after he passed and I talked to about 200 people and they would tell me and right. There's that writer's advice of show don't tell, but there's that challenge of people tend to tell you, well, he did this. He said this, you know, this happened, but the color and so forth. And that, that balance between being accurate when you weren't the firsthand experiencer, but then also attempting to give that gift of a story or, you know, something to the reader 
that makes it so they can picture it and ideally so they feel it. Yeah, so that's, yeah, how, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's the challenge. So it, it makes you a really irritating interviewer. So <laughs> I, I, I would, I would say, all right, Nalant, um, let's walk into that room where you met with all of the medical students. And then you had told them that to, to, you know, they were all sitting in the front row and he, that really, really ticked him off because he felt that was just this sort of colonialism. And so he one day asks uh, the medical students to move to the rear and, and let the Tanzanians move to the front or not let, but uh, make them move to the front. Mm -hmm. and, and so they all exchanged places. And so I, I wasn't there when that happened. So, but I, the room was there. So I walked in one day, uh, years later with Delon and said, all right, you know, where were you? Where exactly were you point exactly to where, you know, what were you wearing and what did it smell like? What did it sound like? And then you start building those details. Fortunately, I was lucky. Uh, Delon Elagala has a, a wonderful memory and he's, he's just, he's a smart dude. So, that helped. And plus I took a lot of pictures and that would help too. And, and you kind of build, build your palette. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. How did you, the question, the question I want to ask here is about, well, the first question is, did you upset anyone with this book? Did you disappoint anybody? Did you piss anybody off? Yeah, uh, I did. Um, so, the book, a lot of the book is set in Haidam, in Haidam, a little town in Tanzania. And it's, uh, there's a, a Lutheran hospital, Haidam Lutheran Hospital there. That's the setting. And it was set up by Norwegians uh, 60, 70 years ago. And it was really, you know, they, they, the, a Norwegian family was really running the hospital for, for years and years and years and years. And some of the, the Norwegian, family members still were active in it. And I, I talked to them and over time, they really love their story. They love their, that they think they did something wonderful there. And, and they did. Um, but they thought that I was writing a book about them and, you know, and I can see why that, because I asked so many questions and I was, you know, I was very, you know, you know, actively trying to understand that their, their story. Um, but the book wasn't about them and they were really mad. Wow. You know, I, as I've been studying, um, writing recently been introduced to the idea that fear is actually what gets in the way, right? We interpret it in different ways of stress or resistance or, you know, other things. But one of them I know from people who want to write a memoir or people who just want to write some other kind of nonfiction, sharing their knowledge in a way that would help other people, that they are afraid of those very things, that they will upset somebody. They will let somebody down. It won't be good enough or whatever. Did you have those fears? Like you probably didn't know that you were going to upset this Norwegian family when you were writing, but I imagine that you must have faced some kinds of fears or doubts as we all do in the process, but you persisted and you published, and I'm really glad you did, but did you face those? And if so, what did they look like for you and how did you move past them? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a wonderful topic because fear, fear in writing. Yeah. Cause I, I, one of my biggest fears was that I wouldn't be able to do it well. And, mm -hmm. and then, you, you know, that's sort of for all of my stories that, 
you know, are you doing it? Did you do a good job? And um, then you just kind of, you got to set that aside. Um, I know there were, there were points when I was working on that book, I was so into it. My identity was so attached to it that I lost myself a little bit. And, and that was not a good thing. And that, that would be a, a, a advice I would give to aspiring writers to remember who they are, that then they're, they're not their writing. They can step outside of it and everything will be okay. <laughs> but my identity became a little too connected to it. So there's that, that fear. And, and I see that fear in a lot of other writers, um, younger writers, especially who are afraid to, to, yeah, to, to kind of really get at the heart of a story. They're, they're too dependent on other people um, dominating the story. So it's sort of this, he said, she said type of story. But when, after a while, if you dig deep enough, you're the, th you're the authority, you're the writer, you're the storyteller. And you got to have that confidence to, to shape it. Awesome. That's a great um, question. You've been so generous with your time and sharing of your experience and, and what you've learned. I know there's so much more we could talk about. But um, I think my two final questions here, one is about any other advice or encouragement that you would leave someone listening with, particularly those who are in their creative, in the middle of their creative endeavor. The other is just generally, if there's anything else that we haven't touched on from life or your work or what you're learning right now or anything. So in some order, however you choose, um, would you... Would you be willing to, to answer those two very poorly worded <laughs> questions? No, I, I really loved your questions because you're, you're obviously a deep thinker and, and, and that's what it's about. And, 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 I, and I'll, I'll say that with this thought in mind, because when I'm trying to work on a story, um, sometimes play a little game with myself. Uh, I ask myself, what's the story about? And then very quickly, I, I answer that question. So it might be about plankton. And I ask myself, well, no, what's the story really about in one word, one or two words? Well, maybe it's about climate change. No. What's the story really, really about? Mm, mystery. Okay. What's the story really about? I try to go in, until I can't think of anything more and that I've reached, and this is the important thing, that I've reached some sort of universal theme, something that is raw and real and is uh, universal that we all can relate to. And once I've kind of reached that, that level, that helps guide my reporting. It helps guide my writing. And you can, and you can play that game with an email. You can play it with a 5,000, 10,000 word story. You can, you can do it with a book. And, and I did that with a, a surgeon in the village. And, and originally I wrote it and I thought, Oh, it's, it's really about the transformational power of teaching but i didn't really get to the real word the real theme the real most the most important theme which was failure until after i wrote it <laughs> wow. and then the failure is the gift that we all give each other if we learn from it amazing okay well tony we'll wrap there thank you so much again for sharing so generously of your experience. And, uh, I know you certainly don't need my, my approval or my affirmation, but I think you're a wonderful writer. I loved this book. Uh, I'm so glad you wrote it. 
I, I do feel motivated to do something to help close this gap of, you know, 17 million people a year who die around the world for lack of adequate surgical care. And I wouldn't have known that if you hadn't have done it. So I'm just, uh, at the, at the end of our time together and of, of reading your book and reflecting what you wrote, I'm, I'm filled with gratitude. Oh, me as well. Brilliant. You yeah, I really appreciate your, 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 your search for depth. It's, um, it's really refreshing and, and thank you for that. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.